Osiris. Count to three. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of... Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. You have found Daniel Donato's Lost Highway. That lost highway. Howdy, friends. Welcome to episode 64 of the Lost Highway podcast. My name is Daniel Donato. This is the podcast of all things Cosmic Country. This podcast is brought to you by Osiris Media because this road needs a place to go. And our friends over at Topo Chico for keeping us hydrated, both off stage and on stage. Because um, life is a stage in some ways, metaphorically speaking. I want to share with y'all this quote by Seneca. Seneca is an old Stoic philosopher. Right, a lot of people name their dogs after Seneca. If you don't know any dogs named after Seneca, that's just fine. You just got to meet more dogs. Um, and, and I don't know any cats named Seneca, but here is one that is just absolutely brilliant. This comes from his um, a short collection of ideas called um, "On the Shortness of Life." So here it is. Uh, this one's wonderful. Life is long if you know how to use it. It is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough, and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements, if it were all well invested. But when it is wasted in heedless luxury and spent on no good activity, we are forced at last by death's final constraint to realize that it has passed away before we knew it was passing. So it is. We are not given a short life, but we make it short. And we are not ill-supplied, but we are wasteful of it. Life is long if you know how to use it. Now, why am I uh, talking about this quote here today? is uh, I, I see uh, in myself, I spend perhaps too much time um, at in certain days thinking about concepts that are not like immediately applicable to my immediate environment. Uh, this could be negative news that I'm taking in. This could be negative media that I'm taking in by seeing it on social media. And I guess it's the concept really of just like really seeing that you have a, a cosmic sovereign responsibility. Uh, to, to focus your consciousness and your thoughts and uh, subconscious and unconscious as much as your free will can conjure onto the thing that will triple down and make you the most happy and fulfilled in your life. And there's a lot of distractions now that are pointing us away from that. It's like what Terrence McKenna talks about, where culture is not the answer and culture is not your friend, but culture is also a necessary machine to propagate and compound the success that you want to see fit for your life. Um, so it's just a matter of like being aware that culture is not necessarily like this very friendly machine uh, that like wants you to be you. It's actually kind of a different thing. It's, it's more or less a, uh, a rapport that if you don't abide by, you kind of get excluded out of. Um, and you spend so much time thinking about it and being involved in it through social media that it can really kind of be a detriment to your sovereign, cosmic, individualized nature that you uh, are at least for myself, I'm trying to fulfill and realize on a daily basis to the to the highest degree that I can. Not every day is the same. Don't judge yourself. Some days you have days that are just not 100%. Some days you kill it. Some days you don't. Some days you blast off. Some days you just smoke, said Sergio Simpson. Yes, Sergio Simpson said it best. So here we go. One more time. It is life is long if you know how to use it. We are not given a short life, but we make it short. And we are not ill-supplied, but we are wasteful of it. So just keep that in mind. You know, Seneca, AD, 40 AD, something like that, was already thinking about these things. Roll with it. I think it's a good one. Just remember, life is long if you know how to use it. 
My next guest today is Mr. Robert Edward Grant, by far one of the most gifted, realized minds I've ever had the opportunity to speak with. Um, he's founded and co-founded several companies that are in uh, the cybernetic space, blockchain space, security space, healthcare space, and fintech as well. Uh, but his attention and his acumen within the past decade or so has been dedicated to uh, uncovering the sacred geometry secrets of this universe and this world of sciences and arts through numbers. Uh, it's such a brilliant journey that he's uh, embarked upon in, in the findings that he shares and creates uh, through this journey are just immensely timeless and inspiring. And it was a sincere privilege to be able to sit down and speak with him. Uh, quite surely and literally, the one and only Mr. Robert Edward Grant. The um, I wish we could arrive at a more uh, humanized tone of these notifications because they're just a little bit too George Orwell. Yeah. Totally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sincerely, how how much are we gonna really, uh, you know, foreshadow at the utopian? Um, well, it's funny because today I just posted on social media this. You know, we did a um, uh, a data bill of rights for our blockchain. Yes. Sterling. And today I just posted on freedom of speech as the First Amendment and how I believe, you know, very strongly in freedom of speech. I might argue with your position on things, but I will fight to the death for your right to voice those positions. Of course. Of course. Of course. I mean, it's just there's no way you can have like a, a democracy or any kind of successful anything, even autocracies for that matter, without freedom of speech. And, and I think that that's just such a messed up thing. And what was mind blowing to me was when I posted that today, one of my musician friends, Major, who's like a music producer, he's also a singer songwriter himself. He sent me a thing back saying, hey, you never even mentioned the word COVID and they put a COVID label on your freedom of speech post. I really hate that, it scares me. Well, it's, it's bizarro, right? I mean, the reason why they do it apparently i only found this out today is because once they tag it with that then the government can can tag uh you know reduces all your search engine results of course and then secondly the government can take it down of course of course under emergency authorities act i mean it's like crazy stuff and here i am talking about freedom of speech it has nothing to do with COVID. right but again right so the thing that's so fascinating is is the suppression of freedom of speech uh, how that seems to be something that everyone is subconsciously agreeing with because they're not calling it a suppression of freedom of speech. They're targeting specific parties or specific uh, ideas, ideologies, philosophies, whatever. And they're saying that that is against the agenda. People don't even know there's an agenda in the mass. They just perceive that there is right or wrong. It seems to be this kind of conundrum where you view things from, uh, if you view things as a right or wrong parameter, dichotomy, you lose IQ points all of a sudden. It's like it makes you less smart. Uh, and why would we do such a thing to ourselves? But that truly is, it's a very terrifying thing. I'm glad that you agree with that. It seems if you look thematically through the ages when suppression of freedom of speech starts to come about, uh, terror lurks around the other corner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, it always starts with that, right? right. It always starts with, with a, a, a suppression of freedom of speech. And it's usually always done in the context of for the public good. <clears throat> Right, which is straight out of V for Vendetta. Right, right. Yes, indeed. It's like all the weird shit in the world that ever happens. Like, yeah, for the public good. We're going to start the Holocaust for the public good. 
That's the way it's always sold to people. Right. And and it's always done under the auspices of social democracy. Right. Right. So somehow it triggers that. But then what ends up happening is those things that were self-reported social democracies look a lot like fascism. A whole lot like fascism. And they add, they, they tend to take one party that has a different ideology into the agenda and to absolutely villainize them to the point of where our tribalistic tendencies, which we don't want to admit that we actually have and possess and are archetypally possessed by, they start to manifest in our behaviors on an yeah. individual level and also group level. And then the only way they identify themselves is by calling them anti whatever it is that they're against. Right, right. You might even know why you're for something and you're against people who are against you. I see. I actually see it as communism is just a mask of fascism. Because oh. think about that for just a moment. Name me one government that claims to be a communist regime that is not actually a totalitarian fascist regime. Once the predator has the neck, they're not going to not go for the jugular. Right. Exactly. I mean, think about this. Is North Korea, I mean, they call themselves, you know, democracy, social democracies or communistic regimes, but actually it's, it's a totalitarian regime. And the way you can always tell if it's totalitarian is there's pictures, effigies of the great leader everywhere. Right. 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 So, you're catching me at a funny moment as I'm sort of contemplating the dystopian nature of kind of the weird technocratic control that we're under right now. It's very bizarre. Well, it's, a, it's extremely bizarre. The thing that I find that's most unsettling for me is when I observe my two younger sisters and, and how the, uh, the manipulation of specifically social media behaviors is starting to manifest in their behaviors of their own analog realities. And it's absolutely terrifying, whether it's with their political identification on certain ideologies which they don't understand at all i'm 26 i'm uh i'm not a very uh uh over the top intelligent person and i have to be very aware of what and very sovereign in terms of what i uh take in and how i react to things and how i feel younger kids are not doing that and the way that this uh as nature compounds on itself the way this younger generation is start moving forward in the future seems a little bit terrifying and how to not remain pessimistic about that is a little hard it's a little challenging um it's absolutely crazy do you i assume you talk to a lot of younger people um Tons. right Tons. given the tenure that you have in your business uh dealings and what you're doing now uh which of course is business as well but not directly related to pharmaceuticals and other industries that you've no, worked no, in. no no I, you know i i have very varied interests i guess across you know different sectors of I'm, course i'm in healthcare. Uh, but also in, in fintech, in security, um, as well as in free energy and clean energy approaches to new technologies, et cetera. So, I mean, I've got different tech kind of uh, biases, I guess, as well as different industrial biases, but everybody has biases. That's why it's so important to be able to have empathy and be able to listen to countervailing perspectives. There it is. I, mean, I, I can't even imagine i mean today at 52 years old mm -hmm. i cannot imagine not having had the benefit of being able to change my mind on certain things because i was convinced as i got older and by my friends and colleagues of different positions on things and that's one of the great wonderful aspects of life that we have the opportunity to learn and change our viewpoints and perspectives um you know but this world that we're clearly being prod into like a cattle prod Right. 
um, is, is one where we're not really allowed to change those perspectives or those perspectives have become conditioned biases that we aren't even aware were biases in the first place. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing that's also very fascinating, which I'm starting to think of in, a, in almost a Freudian way, which is there is a persona now that is owned by companies that have trillion plus dollar net worths that is more valuable on a social and tribalistic speculation than your analog identity who you are on facebook or on TikTok or whatever in short is almost more valuable to the social uh collective consciousness than who you are as a person well yeah because your value is is derived in a way by these platforms as you know and i like the way you use the term analog right that's kind of interesting <laughs> Um, but your value is in large part your behaviors and what you will likely do. And so what you have done is less valuable than what you will do. And so therefore, yeah. if you can take this, this information that can be digitized, take your analog person to make it a practical, pragmatic, and predictive uh, sort of analytical exercise that could be digitized, Right. That is more valuable than who you are to this world. Right. Because they can predict what you will do. They, they know what your actions will be next. If they know your actions and what they will be next, they can look at it collectively and then monetize that value right. as well. So that's why data has become now the world's most valuable asset. Right. 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 And so your data is super valuable. You don't even know it. We're all living and working on a digital plantation that we didn't even know existed. We just called it the earth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right and when facebook so it's basically out. mining the produce just like you know having slaves in the 19th century or 18th century you know people that lived on plantations you know they they in some way shape or form they lived on the plantation they lived there with their family and by the way it wasn't only race-based there was a lot of stuff that was oriented around uh you know indentured servitude if i wanted to travel from Ireland to the United States, I'd have to put in some time working at whoever paid for my fare to get over, right? Mm -hmm. And and I was treated like a slave. I mean, it was kind of messed up and all of slavery was messed up. And But now we're all just in a different kind of slavery by a different name. And that different slavery today is just, we're all being mined of our digital value from our analog experiences. And the kind of slavery that it's creating is is certainly going to be generational. There's this, you know, there's a real chemical change that is happening, oh, yeah. young, especially younger women. Like there's a literal change in the tendency and these these uh, all, almost these autonomous uh, nervous system reflexes of where's my phone, where's my external brain, and you know, getting into biotech. When does that start becoming truly invasive and talking, you know, speculating on metaverse endeavors and how that compounds and scales? It's absolutely terrifying, but people don't do, they don't want to be without their phone. They feel stressed. They feel like they're dead when their phone's dead. Oy vey, because somebody's controlling all of the impulses that are showing up on your screen, right? And they're uh, your best uh, favor and your happiest state of mind, most positive way to, you know, even vibrate on a mathematical level is not what these uh, large uh, corporations want. And I'm all for capitalism. I'm all for the free market. But there certainly seems to be um, a regulation that needs to happen. But it, I wonder, you, you have so much sick, uh, like cyclical tenure in life and just seeing things happen 
from um, cyclical uh, tenure. That's a really nice way of saying that I'm getting older. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, you know, in, in the West, we talk, you know, West, you know, it's I'm not, not 52. I just have secular tenure. <laughs> I like it. It's good, right? It's true because, you know, the, the, the asset of wisdom is that's truly the thing. I, I can't wait to attain such. I a guess that could be secular or secular. It could work both ways. Yes, because um, everything does go in, in cycles and and it is all about secularism, right, to a certain extent. And there is some truth to that. I have to say there is absolutely some very strong truth. I, you know, one of the things that I've laughed about for a long time is that Wall Street trends, mm. trends on Wall Street. Unless you've lived long enough, you don't know when, you know, you, you have never experienced necessarily the full cycles of Wall Street. Right. So, for example, the people when we had the when we had the big you know crash in 2008, mm. you know, I remember talking with my friends about it and saying, well, geez, how did this happen? Because everyone had to know that there was a bubble. Well, if you look at the tenure of time of people that work on Wall Street, investment bankers, when my partner was an investment banker and I once said to him when he was you know, turning 50 years old, I said, really, you're going to be the oldest investment banker in the world because mm. investment bankers are super young. They're mm -hmm. super young. And so they've never seen generally, most people are totally burned out of investment banking at the, you know, at most levels of sort of the hierarchy of investment banks. They're mostly burned out by the time they're 40. So therefore, the people that are in the field have never lived through cycles. And the cycles are longer than the time it took for them to get into investment banking after MBA school until the time that they're out. Precisely. So they don't know how to predict when, when things all of a sudden start to get awry. Right. They just don't know what could happen next. And this is why I think people that were wise sages throughout history, like Plato, <clears throat> who wrote the book, you know, the treatise, The Republic, describing how all governments go through cyclic change. Mm -hmm. This is actually a great thing to read because it allows us to create some prediction based on history and historical reference. And it's not just history, it's her story, it's our story as well. Mm -hmm. But the, the right. fact is that we all benefit when we can step back and see a bigger picture. That's why I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. Of course, well, of course. I've seen, I've seen the cycle, right? I see the cycle. It will always, you know, uh, topics will always polarize the population. It'll always, mm -hmm. is it just coincidence that 50 percent of the population is one direction and 50 percent is the other is it coincidence that you know we have a perfect you know number of male and female almost perfectly matches on the planet right or is it really just related to a, a polarity and a larger you know sort of connection that we don't necessarily perceive on the surface of our world and and there thereupon you know that kind of that kind of uh, specifically coded that kind of inqu inquisition uh, was, you know, thanks to SEO, how I arrived at you. Um, how how is it that there exists a yin and yang, almost in all ways? Uh, and how is it that it's even? I imagine if we were to analyze the vibrational frequencies of the people, uh, I bet there's even a difference there when we start talking about. Uh, political issues. I bet somebody who truly is all the way a Republican or someone who is truly all the way is a Democrat. 
I bet there's a yin and yang mathematical distillation that we'll even arrive at. And I think it's so funny. Like it's almost like this thing about discovering the, uh, the quantitative explanation for uh, all these parts of human nature, which is probably, uh, you know, a subsidiary of nature itself. It's almost, there's a mathematical consistency that's there yet. Our egos are the thing that is making us take it so seriously and so personally, but it really is just like a matter of fact, uh, cycle of this planet. Oh, absolutely. I think everything will be polarized. I am a student of Hermeticism. Okay. And I'm not familiar. So in Hermeticism, it's something now that I've said it to you, you'll probably start seeing it all over the place. That's how it goes. That is how it goes. So it explains the, the concept of polarity and, and how all truths are but half truths. Right. So let's assume now that, you know, we all kind of grew up in this world of what we believed was an objective reality. Mm. I see something a certain way. You see something a different way. But let's say we both witnessed the same crime. Right. And then we go in. I just met with a jury, one of the world's jury experts. Right. The, actually, the film Runaway Jury was uh, was made after him. If you mm -hmm. ever saw the one by John Grisham oh. back in the 90s. And, and he was the guy that they modeled the whole film after. And I, I only learned this today about this person. I've known the guy for 20 years, but, but that's a humble man. Wow. He's one of the, he's one of the, the world's experts in juries. Okay. So I just met with them and, uh, and we're working together on a new technology platform that is, that uses predictive analytics to predict which way juries will go. Court and trials. Right. Very interesting because this technology could easily be expanded to include anything. Right. And I started thinking, wow, this is like precog. Right. It's like precog, right? You can predict anything off of this. And, and, and so you put in the right inputs, the right, it's like what's called in business, a, a, a Monte Carlo analysis. Okay. I'm not Monte familiar Carlo with analysis. that. Term. It's a multivariate you know, aspect analysis that you use to basically create this very complex uh, sort of output or a lot of complex inputs rather to create a very simplistic output of yes or no. Right. Sure. And so it's kind of like in order to understand the simplicity of yes or no, which where whatever issue is going to go two competitors going against each other, two boxers in a ring, mm -hmm. two companies, right. Or, mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, a plaintiff versus a defendant mm -hmm. who's going to win. Right. This is the type of analysis that can be done. And in order to be able to come up with a simplistic answer, you have to be able to have a huge amount of knowledge of the complexity of the surrounding variables. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do you pour all those variables in and then get a simplistic answer? So we're just talking about this just now. OK, so why is it that we have this world that the way it's been described, even Hermeticism, as all truths are but half truths? And the best way I can describe it is this, you know, I have this, this canister from Balvenie, which is, uh, you know, one of the whiskeys that I, you know, have kind of a whiskey man. For. Yes. I like, I like whiskey. So I don't drink very much, but when I do, it's, I'm kidding. There's no product placement on this. That's okay. But basically if I show you this and I said, okay, and all you could see was this flat side right here and you see nothing else. Right, just like as on the screen. Hmm. Say, what am I holding? And you could see that it's casting a shadow behind me, right? Assume that that's a, a darker wall on the back mm -hmm. wall there. Mm -hmm. There's no light behind it, mm -hmm. and it's casting a shadow. You might say, "Oh, you're holding a circle." Right. Right. 
But if someone were sitting in the chair over on the side over here right. and looked at the shadow it's casting on the wall over here, they would say, no, no, you're holding a rectangle. Mm. Wow. Right. But they could fight all day long over, no, it's a circle. No, it's a rectangle. No, it's a circle. No, it's a rectangle. I would then laugh at some point because I would say, well, I have the benefit of the higher dimensional perspective that is both are correct. Ah, but so the omniscience, yes. right. Okay. Because it's actually a cylinder. And from one angle, it is a rectangle. And the other angle in two dimension is a circle. So, so, the, so, so conceptually then when you, when you look at it in this way, when you arrive at a quantitative period, your intuition therefore should be attenuated to say, uh, no, there's not just one, but there are actually probably other several explanations. We never assume a higher dimension. And this is why oh. so therefore, we never also assume our own conditioning bias as playing a role in that. Right. So for example, if two people saw the same crime, you could have two entirely different stories on what happened in that crime. Right. When it's time to testify. Right. So rather than looking at truth as being absolute, without bias, what we have to start to come to the realization of is that, well, wait a minute, maybe the truth I'm seeing is just one facet of a more complex prism of the whole truth. Right. And that, in order to analyze and fully comprehend the whole truth, I need to be able to look at the problem from all the different facets or angles of perspective on it. In, in watching your documentary, I, I realized that there were several values in which that um, I, I deeply felt resonance with. And I feel like that's the only reason why we, you know, tribalistically form a circle, why we would ever invest in any endeavors, because there is a perceived value that is not yet attained or is presently being attained that the other party finds value and meaning in. Right. Mm -hmm. and it resonates. And one thing that you had said was to see things as they are, as they really are. And oh my gosh, just like anything in life, when there's such a simple command, there's an exponentially yet beautiful unveiling story of complexity and trials and errors that are going to um, formulate a path. Uh, with that philosophy. So to see things as they are, the prism of truth, as you said, absolutely wild. People now today receive conviction in the public jury of a happening before it's even in a civil jury, before it's even confirmed. And yet their conviction is already satiated and they already know how they feel before the trial of something even happens. And the mm -hmm. feedback chamber, the echo chamber starts to, of course, compound on itself and it gets even exactly. more scary. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is actually, you're actually revealing facts that make this much more scary than it was prior to this. Um, yeah, because you know. then because then your truth is subject to the interpretation of the truth by each and every one of us, whatever <laughs> that truth is, right? So, and, and the problem with bias is that we only see, someone asked me yesterday, because they, they asked me about um, why mathematically someone had not seen before what I saw. In, in a mathematical thing related to encryption and cryptography. Yeah. And my answer was, you know, honestly, because we only see what we want to see. And you say, so you, do you say that knowing that you, do you? I also do that. You do, so you do. Uh, I see it. So that's the thing. Awakening right. doesn't mean like this concept of woke and I'm going to blame everybody else for yeah. life. Right. What awakening actually means is that 
<laughs> I realized all of a sudden one day, somehow, some way that I'm not just an actor on some stage, but I'm actually a playwright and a director and the producer right. as well. Right. And the way that I see the world has such a huge impact on the experience I have within that world. Mm. Right. It creates so, the world, actually. It creates a lot. Yeah, of because, world. you know, 95% of what happens to us isn't actually what happens to us. It's what we perceived happened to us. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So the big shift is when we realize, wait a minute, we're the architect, we're the whole thing. So there's no one else to blame in this but me. And so therefore, why did I bring this into my existence? Right. What was the reason I needed to experience this difficulty or challenge or whatever? The world doesn't actually happen to us. It happens for us, even the difficult things. And that's one of the hard things to overcome, to understand. And there we need sometimes the perspective of time to show that, I mean, how many times have you had this experience where something that was terrible that happened, that later on you decided, you know what, that actually turned out to be a pretty good thing that happened. I just didn't realize the benefit of it at that moment in time. Right. Absolutely. Uh, every time, every time a, re a resume really is a collection of hardship that uh, has been conquered. Yeah, right. absolutely. Absolutely. So like I would never want to take away those perspectives from myself because those are huge realizations. And when you have enough, as you say, you know, whether it's cyclical or secular, time and experience, you start to realize that those things, you know, a lot of it just gets healed with time. Mm. Yeah. A lot of it, because your perspective shifts with time. You see things differently. You experience, you know, why does time go by so, you know, quickly as you get older? Because your experience with it is directly proportional to how you you experience it now on a day-to-day -day basis. So for example, when you're one year old, one year seems like a freaking lifetime because that was your lifetime so far. Right. When you're 10 years old, one year is one-tenth of a lifetime. When you're 20, it's only one-twentieth. When you're 50, it's one-fiftieth. The years start flying by because your experience with time has now expanded. <laughs> it's not that the time is any different necessarily. Right. It's just simply that your experience with it is a lot broader and therefore, you can conceptualize it. You can contextualize it. Right. Conceptualize and contextualize. Right. Exactly. Almost, so, almost what we're doing simultaneously, these kind of uh, our, our minds, we're conceptualizing things and contextualizing them simultaneously, which is absolutely a fascinating conundrum to arrive at. This is why we need duality. Oh, right. Right. Well, that's so think about it, duality for a moment. Please. I did exactly what you just said. Please. In order for me to fully understand pleasure, I need to understand the degrees of pain. <clears throat> Would I even know how to describe the gradations of light as it is separated through a prism if I didn't fully understand what darkness is and what incandescent light was? Probably not. Right. So Very important. These, these subtleties that we experience, the the different things that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's love or fear or all the things that become dichotomies in our lifetimes, actually bring more texture and more meaning to those emotions that we have that are the positive ones because the negative ones exist. Right. And, and maybe, maybe just maybe, without those negative emotions, 
would we even appreciate the positive ones as much? Right. Uh, plenty of studies show no. There's no direct correlation between industrialization and happiness levels among a general populace. So that would say no. Right. Exactly. Right. And that's so, right. So I become very grateful for my negative and difficult experiences. But that, uh, that kind of, there's this interesting concept I've been uh, dealing with lately and thinking with and interacting with life with, which is to not take things personally, whether it's success or whether it's a failure, whether it's uh, in, in regardless of the scale of such a thing. Now you can take responsibility for the things, of course, that you, and assets you attain, of course, and things you realize. Um, but to not take them very, very personally, I think is a very wise way because then you, you lean more in towards the role of being the observer and not the person who's the actor in the film, um, which, which seems to be kind of what you're talking about. So the duality, wow, what a beautiful way. And which is another kind of flag that is similar to the yin and yang, um, uh, a distillation of almost all things, even Carl Jung talking about the shadow of a human. There is, we in ourselves are a walking conundrum of duality at all points in time. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the big ahas for me was about 11 years ago, I was, uh, I went to Hong Kong to meet this guy who had left the company. I was CEO of Bausch & Lam at the time of Bausch & Lam Surgical. And mm -hmm. this guy had left the company. He was a country manager in Thailand. And he left to go on like a five-year, five-year monast to a Buddhist monastery to do like a vipassana that lasted that long. So not talking to anybody for five years. Okay, that's a long time. Boy. So I thought, well, wow, I'll be one of the first people to talk to. I got to find out what this guy learned while he was there because right. fascinating stuff. And uh, and so I talked with him in Hong Kong, and I said, "What did you learn while you were there for five years?" <laughs> and I only wanted the Reader's Digest version. And he gave me even less of the Reader's Digest version. He gave me a simple answer, which was completely not simple at the same time. Right. There is no duality. Duality is an illusion. Whoa, I, I don't really, I, God, part of me hates that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's how I felt too. I was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? He's like, you know, good, evil, you know, like love, hate, or fear humility and arrogance. Sure. These are all just different degrees of the same thing. And actually we think of them as being on a linear line, but truthfully they're actually on a circle or a sphere. And, and I was like, Hmm. So I was flying home contemplating his very wise words. Cause I, I felt like something about it resonated for me. So of I started writing down all the antonym relationships of words I could think of. Right. So like humility and arrogance. Okay. I'm like, how can those two things be the same thing? Degrees of the same thing. And then I realized, I'm like, well, wait a minute. If it's linear, then if I keep going, is there a place that I could go and become even more humble? Right. And is it possible that I become so humble that I actually become arrogant in that humility? Do I know people like that? Hmm. Mm -hmm. I actually do. Oh, I see. I see. So you actually see this like a circle. So then I started thinking, well, what about like communist versus fascism? I was like, so if you go Not super me. far left, uh, you're a communist. Right. But man, oh man, you go too far, you're a fascist. It doesn't go, it doesn't keep going out farther away from each other. They wrap around on each other. Right. And 
Every concept I noticed of duality was exactly like that. If you fall in love with someone <laughs> and, and it doesn't work out, is it common for you to hate that person? Mm, yeah, <laughs> it is. Right. Right. So you've got conditional and unconditional love. <laughs> Trail. So what is it you have to experience? What types of experiences will you bring into this world of your directed playwright activity? If I'm here to learn unconditional love, then probably I need to experience its opposite. And I'll keep experiencing it over and over again until I finally learn it. And its opposite is betrayal, because that is the definition of conditional love. This is the snake eating its tail. This is the art. This is the Ouroboros. Exactly. All right. This is almost the price that anything that exists within this specific realm of human space and time uh, to be, it also has to not be that thing, such as light, such as being born and dying. And this is why Shakespeare wrote to be or not to be. Right. Hamlet's oh soliloquy. Ooh. Wow. You know, the, the thing that's, I wonder about Shakespeare, which is something I, you know, when you're younger, you think you have all this acumen to kind of neglect the classics, whether the classics are of a poetic playwright, whether of a musical play, whether, you know, something that's uh, perhaps by Bach. Um, music archetypally just hit me in my, in my lizard based brain and my spine where I was consumed by it on a mathematical level too, which is what I want to talk on here in a second. But I have this theory about these truths and I'd like to hear your thought on them, which is I wonder about the thing about something that's true and the thing that's a lie, right? And I don't know what makes art truthful or not. And this is something I really have a question for, for someone who has cyclical tenure, um, which is why I, I think the thing that could only postulate itself over many decades of time, many generations and hypotheses of the right way to interact with life, there's the only way something can really live through all that time, such as the Pythagoras, such as uh, such as Seneca, such as Plato. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the amount of truth that must be encapsulated within any concept. I wonder if truth is very much so the thing that allows to give something perhaps this almost time space armor that actually can like live through different generations and still be. There's a reason why we listen to Bach and there's a reason why we stay to be or not to be when we don't even really know who Shakespeare was. We don't even know if he wasn't even a very wealthy born prince at the time who was going by a different name. Yeah, no, I mean, Shakespeare was I think it's pretty one of my partners that I work very closely with. Alan Green is probably the world's preeminent expert on decoding the Shakespeare code. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, he was probably a collection of people, including uh, the 17th Earl of Oxford, who was also the lover of Queen Elizabeth, uh, Edward de Vere. He was probably also Sir Francis Bacon and possibly even Kit Marlowe and for sure John Dee. All four of them were Rosicrucians who basically worked together, all hermeticists who encrypted not only the works of Shakespeare in the sonnets, 154 sonnets, and also the the plays of Shakespeare, but in addition, the King James Bible as well. It was published in the same time period. So they encrypted all of these things with like hidden hermetic wisdom and knowledge. So, but your comment about this notion of compression of truth. Mm, Compression of truth, right. Because I I see this as kind of like a compression of truth. When there is a statement that literally could apply to all the facets of the whole truth, Mm -hmm. it tends to endure. Right. 
Right. Yes. So this goes back to Seneca. This goes back to Plato and Pythagoras and Socrates. And I'm not a big fan of Aristotle, but I, I definitely believe that all of these polymaths and Aristotle, I don't even conclude it as a polymath. He was not a Greek mathematician and, and he was a very narrow minded thinker that mm. became the basis who set the stage for pretty much all of Western philosophy of what we now refer to as sort of reductionism. Mm -hmm. He was a botanist who named plants, <laughs> right? named plants and animals, and he wanted to put everything in categories, whereas mathematics meant all learning. So the term mathematics in Greek up until Aristotle's time referred to the seat or the reference of all learning, not just the quantity or the science of quantity. I and see. what Aristotle did is as a botanist who was setting philo classes, he wanted to do the same thing with the disciplines of learning. Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't very good at geometry. He wasn't very good at mathematics. So he said, no, this is just the limited science of quantity rather than referencing it as Pythagoras did and Plato did as all is number. The oh. entire universe is number. That is the language that the language that the universe is writ upon. And our DNA is all number as well. And so he very much limited. That's why the terms polymathy was not a reference to mathematics. It was a reference to all learning, all poly learning, learning right? And philomath, which is the name of my book, philomathy, is also just meaning lover of learning, <laughs> right? Lover of learning. So it was Aristotle who made that limited separation. Now, this is a product plug. This is now a product placement. Which this I is a product about. plug, yes. But the, the, if you want to learn more about that, then find that book, Philomath. But, but basically, this, this notion that you just raised of being able to compress truth is because that truth is, has turned the prism of all of its different facets of truth into a sphere, a very smooth sphere. Oh, right. So, for example, love. Sure. Right. Love is a very, very broad thing, right? Very broad. Acceptance, gratitude. These things are universal truths that will stand the test of time. Always. Always stand the test of time. And that's why, you know, you have people like Jesus, Muhammad, or, you know, Siddhartha, mm -hmm. all of them, these, mm -hmm. these purveyors of this kind of very broad wisdom. Don't get stuck on the illusion. Don't get stuck on the game of polarity. Don't get stuck on the interpretation or of the observance of it, but rather be able to observe without judgment. Right. Yes. They all taught non-judgment. Every one of them taught non-judgment. Yes, 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 yes. And acceptance. Right. So those are the lasting truths, I believe. People seem to be really tied, though, to these kind of tribalistic IDs, identification systems that we, especially here in America, where they don't want to recognize those similarities between, say, someone like Siddhartha and Jesus. Oh, no, I, mean, I was raised this way. My parents are this way. I'm not even going to look at that over there. But what you'll see is a collection of asset values that are literally the same. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Well, you're absolutely right. I went to meet with, uh, after I discovered the prime number pattern, in 2018, I got an invitation to meet with Dalai Lama in his house. So I went to India. I brought a scientific group with me, and I spent the day teaching Dalai Lama the prime number pattern. Wow. 
And while we were there, he mentioned that he had all the records at his house in Tibet, which he's exiled from, of Jesus and his visit to Tibet. He's exiled from his house in Tibet. Yeah, yeah, that's he lives in North India now because he got thrown out by the Chinese. Well, not thrown out, he escaped. Right. There's, right. A, there's a great movie about that as well. That's uh, that's worth watching about Dalai Lama's life and how he was basically exiled out of his country because communism and, and Mao Zedong in particular didn't want him as a symbol of control for the people or leadership of any sort. Right. I mean, this was a similar type thing. There was a cultural war. There right. was a cancellation war going on at that time. Right. Chiang Kai-shek was thrown out of the country and, and you have the Chinese people who were so tempted by the, the notions of capitalism that they decided to put themselves into this vice lock grip called communism. Mm. That's what we do. We judge everyone else with the things we don't like about ourselves. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. This is a new one for me that I, of course, as a, as a stumbling stoned ape had arrived into that one day and boy, is it relieving to kind of see all the, all the downfalls that you bring upon your own, you know, spectrum of, of, um, of consciousness. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great relief to know that it, it's you, that it's not the world. And the way that you're judging other people is a direct reflection of how you're judging yourself, right? Yeah, and we right. will attract everything we judge until we no longer judge everything we attract. And when we say attract, you so I definitely skew in, in a lot of ways, you know, despite my personality test results as, you know, I love rationality. I really do. Even though I'm very high in openness and I'm very high in industriousness and I'm very high in extrovertedness. Uh, you know, that could definitely, you know, lead me to kind of love things and romanticize things. But I do love a rationale. And when we say we attract things, the thing that's so fascinating is that there's all this, now these quantitative mathematical proofs of the fact that all this number. One thing I've been observing lately is kind of, and my mind just goes to dichotomy because music is dichotomy. There's major and minor. There's two kinds mm -hmm. of songs. Mm -hmm. That's freaky. I mean, that is absolutely freaky. It's weird. <laughs> so there's almost a framework, right? And let's call that order. And within all of these numerous frameworks, whether it's the framework of a rectangle that holds the Mona Lisa or an NFT, whether it's the framework of a song that is major, or whether it's the framework of a human, there is all this individualized chaos that is episodic and almost mortal in its nature, but almost astonishingly beautiful at mm -hmm. all times. Mm -hmm. It's all different, yet it's all the same. Mm -hmm. um, humans kind of have this way to, we want to make things linear when nature almost seems to be inherently nonlinear. When I go on a nature and I go in hiking, say in Zion, like I did this past weekend, uh, into Angel's Landing, and I get up to the top of this mountain and you observe all the, all the curves and where all the rivers are. Yeah. It's astounding. It's breathtaking. It's, it's divine, uh, truly. It's nonlinear, though. It's, uh, it's not like a Roblox game where we have this low poly rendering of, 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 you know, we'll say to a human, to another human on the screen that a human made, here is what a mountain looks like that is not made by a human, but it has to be linear uh, in order for us to kind of make it. We can't make a nonlinear representation of, of what nature really is. But what you have showed me is that there perhaps is a mathematical linear uh, pattern to all of these things. And so oh, I'm, yeah. I'm almost existentially more scared than I ever have been. And I'm only 26. This so is, <laughs> this is a real awesome. issue. <laughs> so you know how, you know how flight simulators work, right? Um, 
to a degree. The way flight simulators are made is they, the, the entire architecture of the simulation is based on right triangles. Mm. So those are linearized right triangles. Now, why right triangles? Because right triangle is the one shape that can fill any void space in two dimensions. And it can also create a landscape with enough texture that it gives you an illusion of three-dimensionality. Oh. So, by the way, the entire universe is made up of these same right triangles. So then you have to ask yourself the question, are we in a simulation? Hmm, that's a really good question. But what you're perceiving as being nonlinear is, in, in a way, at the surface of it, it is absolutely nonlinear. There's no oh. straight lines, right? But actually, at the, at the foundational basis of it, right. it's a lot of linearity that's making up that nonlinearity, nonlinear experience that you're observing. And there seems to be, this is something that is very fresh for me that I'm observing, but there seems to be a very real literalness, which I'm not sure is a word, but it fits this context of nature. Uh, there is a very literalness to it, where if I feel a certain way, I perceive the world that way, which explains the Freudian thoughts that you are a collection of many identities. If you're hungry, you experience the world through a hungry person's eyes. There's a very literalness to nature. So what I'm wondering, and I don't believe in cheat codes. I don't believe in, you know, I like Tim Ferriss with the four-hour work week things. I don't believe in the get fast. <laughs> right? You have to engage with nature. It, 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 it's going to make you work hard to get things and to, uh, you know, to attain or to work smart too. I wonder if there is a literal almost setting in which a human can find themselves thinking and postulating in that feedback cycles and creates a beautiful, magnificent reality before your eyes. You hear Nikola Tesla talk about 369, um, of course, right, which blew, blows my mind because how that relates to music is frightening. But he also talks about um, energy, vibration, and frequency which seems to be a very literal, non-personalized, egoless, caring energy force in which a human, if they're uh, so lucky enough to kind of stumble upon that ideology, can kind of manifest and create an amazing reality before their eyes because maybe nature is that literal. Maybe if you are at the right, uh, which sounds very woohoo and not rational, but it actually might be if you're you know, vibrating at the right frequency with the energy that you are, you can create a magnificent simulation before your eyes up until your last breath and then onward after. So maybe that is what we're living in. What you just described is the foundational principle of all hermetic belief. So I've kind of, I love when I arrive somewhere. I love when I show up to the party thinking it's just me and everyone's like, hey, asshole, we've been here. <laughs> so what, what, what you've just described is the principle of mentalism. So are those two different things, people have also said stoicism, right? So there's all these mouth sounds that, well, yeah. you know. I mean, basically that, that we wow. create the universe around us is probably more appropriately termed a U inverse. I've heard you say this, right? So what I mean by that is that how you feel about things, how you observe things. When I say we attract everything we judge, what do I mean by that? Right. What I mean by that is it's the old adage of if you're a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Mm. The things that you think is happening to you every day are the things that you probably still have some trauma from either this life or a past life that has yet to be resolved. 
And you are projecting that out from the inside of you because it's like a splinter inside of your soul that you want to bring out and work out until you have a realization that, oh my gosh, the way I perceived that all along was maybe the exact opposite of what it was. Right. A duality. Yeah. So then you go, whoa, wait. So then you can forgive that experience, forgive everyone else in it and forgive yourself in it. And, and, you know, the world is not a tough place because people hate each other. The world's a tough place because people hate themselves. Of course. And what happens is we project all of that self-hatred into the world around us. So the things that we judge in ourselves start showing up in the world around us in all the interactions that we have with everyone else. The things we don't like about ourselves, we're like, I am not that. I am not that. I am not that. I don't want to be that. So I repel against it. Yeah, very Until I finally realize the thing I'm repelling against is what I am. And I'm not willing to confront and I'm not willing to own and I'm not willing to accept. So that then causes this heavy, dense shadow that Carl Jung is talking about. There we go. must be integrated and accepted. Individuation, right. Individuation, aeon, exactly, aeon. So that's a book that Carl Jung wrote, A-I-O-N. Oh, I didn't know it was a Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, of course. So, So this whole notion of being able to start to accept the world around you is only going to occur when you go on an inside journey. But the inward journey into yourself is actually the realization of the outward journey because you are just a reflection. All of this experience around us, think of it like this. It's almost like, a, let's say that there was a iceberg. An iceberg, we could see only what's above the surface of the water, right? right? And that's the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. Right. Everything underneath the surface of the water, that is the unseen, the invisible, the unconscious. And the mass beneath is 90%. Right. Exactly. The vast majority of it's down there. And by the way, the subconscious mind and the unconscious mind controls all your autonomic bodily functions and everything, right? Think about it. You have trillions of cells right now operating, going through cellular mitosis all simultaneously. How's that all being directed and guided? We can only, with our conscious mind, do... Some people can do a few things more, but like a maximum of 18 things. We can only walk and chew gum and talk and be on our phone. There's like a maximum number of sort of different activities we can undertake, but that is not true. That limitation is not correct on the unconscious mind. The unconscious mind is operating all the time. Oh, right. So my point is this, that as we start to realize, as we go inward, and we realize it's not about blaming everyone else in our lives for what happens to us, but rather, why am I reflecting that circumstance in the world around me? Because I can't separate my observation from the activity that I'm perceiving. Observation activity. So, for example, somebody does something, right? I cannot separate the lens of my bias from what that activity was. So let's say somebody comes along and says something a certain way that triggers me because of my past history. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, let's say I'm a dog Mm -hmm. and every day my owner comes or my father, whatever you want to call him, right? Comes out. And when he leaves the house every morning, he kicks me on the way out. So I go, you know, like that hurts. But then after a while, I start to actually believe that that's the way he expresses love to me. Or at least I know he knows I'm relevant. Right. So what happens to the dog is the dog starts to believe that it needs to be kicked. Right. Right. 
Right. So it actually starts to perceive that that kicking is a good thing because then it knows that it's there. I mean, we've all seen people that children even that act out and do bad things, quote unquote, bad things just to get attention. Oh, yeah. Right. So then the dog starts acting out to get attention so that it gets kicked. Right. We, we all do that. And see, the thing is, the truth is, from the very beginning, the notion that being kicked is a good thing or a bad thing became our own conditioning bias. Conditioning the bias. truth is, it was never a good thing from the beginning. It was never a good thing for the beginning. But all of a sudden, we took it as a, oh, I need that to know that I'm relevant. I, I need that experience. Right. right. So I, I'm looking now to be kicked. So then people walk throughout their lives trying to get kicked. Because they have their own self-loathing also. Right. And they feel like they need to be punished. So if you feel like you need to be punished, you're going to put yourself in a world of punishment. Right. At a subconscious level. So we are not able to see all of these things. We're the only ones that can't see these aspects in ourselves. You know, you could put two kids in the exact same circumstances, mm-hmm. with the exact same genetics and the exact same environmental factors, and they'll have very different outcomes. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is a good example of it. Mm. So uh, researchers at Harvard University wanted to understand, you know, what is it that makes some children genius and other children not? Is it nature or nurture? What is it? So they went to, they went to a teacher and they said, okay, we're going to do an observation, you know, study on your classroom. And all your kids are five years old and six years old. Mm-hmm. And we're going to test the kids and uh, we're going to find out which one of them are higher on the sort of rating or, you know, sort of gain higher scores and might actually be genius level. Right. right. And we're going to, we're going to tell you, but you're not allowed to tell their parents. You're not allowed to tell anybody. Great. So they, they test 30 students, right? They test 30 kids and the, of the 30 kids, five kids come back is on this high end of, you know, Mensa, the towards Mensa. So they come back to the teacher and they say, okay, these are the five kids. Uh, you're not allowed to treat them differently at all. We're going to observe you in the classroom. We're going to videotape everything. Right. And you're not allowed to, to tell anyone this. You're not allowed to act differently. You can't do anything different. Well, what was interesting is at the end of the year, they, they gave a, a test to the same students to see which one of the students came out as genius level. And the same five students ended up being genius level, of course. which is not a big surprise. Not at all. Except, except that the subject of the research was actually false. They never got any of the students, none of the students when they were first tested were genius level. Oh, ha! Great. it was a study on the teacher to see if the teacher's expectation mm-hmm. would change the outcome for those five students. And it did. Right. Right. We get in life, not what we deserve. We get what we expect. There it is. That's the non-literal compounding electromagnetic wonder that is this universe. What we expect. The crazy thing, though, about being a human is you have this serotonin system that is millions of years old that teaches you to expect certain things based on what happens in your manifested experience. That's right. And so that's how conditioning biases change your expectations. When somebody is not intending to be rude to you, you might perceive them as rude. Taking it personally, right. And then that creates a cascade of events. Everything compounds. The eighth wonder of this world, right. Everything compounds from that point forward. And we don't even realize that we're doing it with literally everything. Everything. Because we think that our truth is the one objective truth. 
<laughs> oh gosh right right it's a fraction of the truth our experience is only a fraction that's why i really advocate for drawing geometry because geometry somehow allows you to expand your viewpoints and perspectives it somehow allows you to to put yourself into another perspective so you can look at this angle of geometry in a different way and appreciate it in an entirely different way so you're and, metaphorically applying a shape of something that is geometric to the perhaps many sides of any given truth within a conscious experience. Yeah. I mean, so for example, right, if I, if I show you this, right. If, if I didn't, if you didn't know that this was three dimensional, you would say, Oh, that's just a hexagon you're holding. Right. Same thing. Right. But guess what? The compression of a hexagon already has all this information within it. We could recreate this. If I if I were to put uh, see what shadow is cast on this, I could see a hexagonal shadow. The same could be true also for a cube. Right. If I if I put a cube up against the light and have it cast a shadow down on my desk, it's going to make the shape of a hexagon. So the shape of the hexagon already has within it the compressed information of all the higher dimensional forms that it could become. What we're seeing is only that two dimensional image. So we don't know. That there's more information that's compressed within it, that shadow that we just simply don't know. The same is true for all things. We all love to say that wow. entropy is random, right? That, and, and mathematicians in particular, they love randomness. They're like, oh, you know, my most beautiful equation is e to the i pi plus one equals zero. And it's like, why is it so beautiful? It's just beautiful. I'm like, but why? Well, because it's imaginary plane. It's got Euler and pi, and then it comes back to two, you know, transcendental irrational numbers somehow through this weird thing, come back to zero. That's like really cool. Okay, well, maybe just maybe, right? <laughs> what we are looking at and what we are experiencing is only one aspect, one tiny slither or one tiny facet of a larger truth that we should be seeking to understand. And by breaking down all these experiences that are intended that we experience over and over again so that we can dismantle conditioning bias number one, dismantle conditioning bias number two, dismantle conditioning bias number three, that we were not even consciously aware of. Right. And right. in so doing, we start to expand our perception. Right. And in that process, we now start to gain deeper empathy for mankind. Right. We gain deeper empathy for ourselves. Right. We change our living experience so that instead of being the hammer that perceives the nail all around him, you know, if you're a cop, then everyone's a criminal sometimes. Right. If you're a judge, then, you know, <laughs> if you're, if, if whatever it is, right. Lawyers want to try to gag people. Yes. Right. Because they think that their power is derived from their ability to speak. So they actually have something called a gag order. Yes. Right. Yeah. So think about it. It's like all the things that we are. Doctors think everyone's sick, right? And so what, what we should try to do. Wow. Yeah. And we don't even want to recognize the motivations behind the things we do right. that are actually quite untoward. That's where you find your task, though. Right. Where you find your fear, you find your task is what Jung said. And it's it's so true. And what you're saying, again, that compressed truth verbiage from, from his mind to, to the rest of time, again, it's manifesting in a very functional way through what this situation is.
you don't want to see the, 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 the many uh, sides of the geometric shape that is life. And we don't want to see the aspects of ourselves that we've already judged are not good enough. Oh, we don't want to see the, the motivations and actions, those things that we're doing that are actually just self-serving. And this is why when you look at ethics, ethics inevitably becomes what we believe consciously will benefit us the most. Mm. So it's like, that's why the person that's like so obviously self-serving is like pressing for something that they don't even recognize how self-serving it looks. Yes. They, they don't get it. And we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. Of course. It's like every motivation we have, it's like, oh, it's really funny how that works. You know, it kind of goes back to Cain and Abel or, or you know, like oh. two, two shepherds, you know, with two flocks. And one of them looks over and the grass is greener and says, you know what? He's got nicer, greener grass. That'd be great if I had his land. Hmm. Mm. You know what? I think he worships a different God. Yes. And my God's angry because my God doesn't like his God. And so therefore I have to kill him and take his land. And therefore I will consecrate it to my God. Yes. That makes me righteous. Right. When really the motivation was, I just wanted his fucking land. Right. Right. So, and so are you there then therefore saying that it is best to communicate with yourself in a dialogue that is distilled to the original sentiment of whatever it is that you're inspired to do? Being awakened means you are awakened to your own bullshit. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, of course. Of course. That's it. Right. Right. And so you are always guiding your life based on your own bullshit. And you don't even realize it until you finally wake up and say, oh my gosh, you know, I've been playing the self-serving game all along and I don't want to keep playing in this cycle over and over again. So you decide to go the opposite direction. Okay. And when you say guiding your life, that's the thing that I, I, I think about this as of now. And I, I think of these moments that I had where I felt a rather, uh, specifically with music, uh, in, again, analyzing the cyclical, phenomena of many other perceived to be different humans lives that are kind of just living out their own hero's journey uh right it's a, again a form in which order have it's orderly but there's chaos in the individuality i i wonder if it's is it even you that is telling you to do all these things and then you start looking at these mathematical underlying explanations of all things is it is it perhaps are we just following some some spectrum of a of a quantitative order that is fulfilling itself through us the, many have said the universe is basically just observing itself through us yes Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I believe that's the case with music in a big, big way. Well, I mean, the, the word universe is like one verse, right? It's like a song. And what I think of, again, coming back to this whole you inverse analogy. Right. Um, first of all, music and mathematics are just mirror reflections of each other. You've said geometry is kind of the nexus between music and math. and, and Right, right. So if you think about it, you have, you know, in a quaternion analysis or Cartesian plane, you have one real plane of numbers, right? And then you have three imaginary planes because you have negative numbers. And so the square roots of negative numbers are going to be these imaginary plane numbers, right? 
So the square root of negative one is in the imaginary plane. So this whole idea of imaginary plane. So then if you could take ideas of ratio and everything is based on ideas and aspects of proportionality of ratio, X and Y, that's all you have. And by the way, all musical chords come as a result of that. I could, I could make all musical chordal relationships by doing different variations and transformations of the numbers two and three. Yes. Three over two is the perfect fifth. The cube root of two is the major third. Yep. Yes. That's three and two. It's just a different way of looking at three and two. Right. Two over one's an octave. Right. Exactly. So these very simplistic number relationships are just X and Y axes. There's again, creating right triangles, but now we're going to then apply that to art and we've got proportion. We've got golden ratios. We've got, you know, silver ratios and platinum ratios and all kinds of different ratios that we can use to bring more beauty and texture and context to whatever it is we're making. So we're taking that, that idea that is the real plane, the numbers, into an imaginary plane that becomes art, that then becomes manifest as a holographic projection. Right. Then, it, then the, 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 I guess where I'm arriving at it then is depends what you mean by imaginary, because it seems like then at that point, what imaginary is, is something that is yet to be real. Or maybe it is already real and we're just creating that imaginary reality all around us moment by moment. Oh. And all you have to do is bring to that music and resonance, and then it takes on mass. Right. It because we already know that sound waves, phonons, carry mass. Right. That's already been proven just like about a year and a half ago. Sound okay. waves carry mass. Sound and so sound and light are just opposite reflections of the same thing. Also, just as mathematics and music are opposite reflections, the right brain interpretation of mathematics becomes a musical interchange with our consciousness. Geometry is the nexus that connects those two things. That's why we fall in love with architecture. We can be looking at something with our eyes that feels like listening to a symphony. Yes. Yes. Geometry is just the music that we experience with our eyes. And music is just the geometry, right, that we experience with our ears. Right, we're these little ego-carrying stoned apes that think that we take everything so personally, but we're unveiling this, like, this literal uh, formulaic explanation for all of these things that is so not personally attached to what, what we love and what we don't love. No, and that's right. And so freedom in that. That's why we have to start to realize that it's okay to love the things that we didn't think we should ever love. Yeah, right. Because you probably do. Because, because those experiences give us the texture of life. This is why Jesus taught, and so did Siddhartha, and so did Muhammad. Love your enemy. Yes. And yet it always comes back. So Jehovah in the Old Testament was always a jealous God. But when Jesus comes, he's like, no, love your enemy. Mm. Love your enemy as yourself. Mm. Judge, he only gave two commandments, right? Judge not lest ye be judged with that same mode in your eye that you're judging in everyone else. Mm. Judge not because as soon as you stop judging, then you stop judging yourself. That's really what he means by judge not lest ye be judged by that same judgment by yourself. Okay. The other thing he said, it was love your enemy, love everyone, love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. 
By loving your neighbor, you end up loving yourself and accepting yourself. And as we accept and love ourselves, the entire world around us transforms into a world that's reflecting that love back to us. Right. You, Alan Watts has this concept where he just trusts the universe, right? And of course, if it's, it fits surrender. on a, surrender, let go or be dragged. If it, if it fits on a Snapple cap, though, there is, there's hours of explanation in life experiences that you could have, years probably, that will you know still determine that. And what he talks about is essentially you could take anything that is sentient or, or a piece of music or anything, and you could analyze it on almost this very, the micro level that is unimaginably small, and you'll find complexity over complexity over complexity. But as you tend to move out and you tend to get more macro, things simplify and harmony is found. Again, no coincidence probably with harmony within major and minor intervals that are happening at all moments. In time, the major scale is a collection of yin and yang, major and minor, pull release. Right. This is just phenomenal stuff that, you, that, that we're touching on here. So, wow. I, I, I'm just, I'm really marveled by all this because it seems like there is, there is a calculation and this almost old stock ticker uh, that is happening before the times of the fintech revolution where now where, you know, you can uh, yield 5% uh, annually with ETFs that you don't ever have to look at. Uh, back in the day, right, you have this machine, the scroll, it's going in and it's going out. And I wonder if there is a, me a mechanistic operational universe or a uh, you inverse that has this approach that you can mentally get into and then therefore get the yields and the gains that you would like. See, it's funny you say that because basically one of the things I realized is that when I first started to like grok this, I'm like, wait, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. It comes straight from a poem by w William Ernest Henley. Out of the night that covers me. And I could never figure out why this poem had such deep resonance for me. Right. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Mm. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet... The menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. These words had such a huge impact on me, and I could never figure out how all, you know, what was the black as the pit from pole to pole? Right. You know, what was, you know, the matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. All these words like really, really stood out to me. This is a poem written in 1875. Of course, compressed and, truth. And I was like just really drawn to it as a concept. But when I started realizing mm. that the texture and the beauty of life is the fact that I have the contrast. Ah, right. And without the contrast, what am I here to experience? So... And I want to learn those things through those realizations. I want to have those experiences. I want to learn how to love my enemy and no longer perceive the enemy at all. I want to learn how to accept myself because the enemy within is the greatest enemy of all. And 
when I could start to realize the world in that way, my entire world started to change. Did it really? Dramatically. It, wow. What you perceive is what you conceive almost is something that we could arrive at with that concept. And what you conceive is what you achieve. Oh, and there's three. And we almost feel that resolve when there's a three in the headline or when there's a three-step plan or there's a three-act play, which I wonder if it's like part of our almost evolved all conscious life form circuitry that we share, just how we share serotonin with, you know, Jordan Peterson infamously makes it with lobsters, which is an easy metaphor, easy point of entry, but it's true. The three thing, I wonder, wow, we just arrived at that. And what you perceive, what you can, what you conceive is what you achieve. Absolutely wonderful. So is there something now this is completely aside from the from the fact of um, of your studies and in, in regards to all that you do? Are there any best practices that you do constantly to kind yes, of Yes, I was going to get to that, actually. And one of the things that I realized through all of this is I needed to stop judging everybody else. Ah, because I was super judgmental. I didn't even realize how judgmental I was. I, I had lived in this world and I'd had a lot of secular tenure, as you said. Yeah. And it just means I'm getting old. And, and basically <laughs> what, that, what that meant was that I had to stop judging people. Right. Easier said than done. And as I would stop judging people, then I could move on, right, and evolve and no longer judge myself. And the way I learned to do that was simply by saying, whenever I was about to judge anyone on any topic in a negative way in particular, is I would stop myself and I would say out loud as a punishment to myself in a way, I would say, I am that I am. The thing that I am judging negatively in another person, I would stop and say, I am that thing. Because I know that whatever it is that he or she is doing that's triggering me is not a function of he or she. It is a function of me and my own conditioning bias. Right. That I no longer have decided that I, I want to reject. And now I'm rather going to accept. Right, right. And, you know, the, here in the West, we probably perceive that we have a higher dosage of free will than we do in the actuality of things. Mm -hmm. which, mm -hmm. Right. But you do have the freedom to stop and say, I want to reject this condition bias if you're ever so lucky. Oh, wow. In the present moment to kind of have that awareness. Do you remember what age you were when that started happening? Oh, uh, probably about two years ago. Oh, <laughs> what a humble answer. What a humble answer. <laughs> That's funny. That's very honest. I mean, I mean, look, I, I've had a great life. I have no complaints. You know, I've, I've had ups and downs. And I now look back on all the aspects of my life with absolute romanticism and love because I, right. I look back on it now. And even for the most difficult of times, I'm super grateful because they all brought me to where I am now. And this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, maybe we all get hung up on this question of free will or destiny. You believe in destiny. You know, in the very beginning, I used to think, I even give a TED talk on this. I would talk about how I could manifest my reality and I could use intentional choice and, and combine it with things like gratitude and everything. And I could literally manifest whatever it is I wanted to manifest. And I had a really good track record of doing it. Right. And what I now realize, though, is that my concept of what is free will and destiny has radically shifted. Great. The way I look at things now is that 
I realized that the past is entangled to the future and the future entangled to the past and the future determines the past as much as the past determines the future. Those two things are irrevocably tied together. You cannot separate them. It's inextricable. But what I realized that was the biggest aha moment for me was that basically in all circumstances, what I had thought was destiny in the past was really just my own free will, but in the context of the higher self. So what we've been calling destiny maybe is really just the higher self's free will. And we are not separate from the higher self. We are operating as a higher self. We're operating outside of space-time. Therefore, there is no future. There is no past. They're happening. All of this is just an eternal now. So therefore, what we considered destiny all along was still our own free will because it was the thing that was happening for us. It was the most important thing that we needed in that moment of time to realize ourselves and to evolve to the next level. This is what Alan Watts meant when his you know, conversation about surrender hit your ears. It's all about realizing that the higher self has your back already. And even when the higher self is throwing you some difficulty and challenge and stuff that you think that you cannot overcome or surmount, it's impossible to, to get past it. Even that realization in of itself is the thing that you needed the most. You didn't get what you wanted. You got what you needed. The opposite of the song. You can't always get what you want, right? Right. And why do we sing that? Even if you, they go to Brazil, they don't speak English natively, uh, even though you speak several languages. They feel it in this archetypal higher self present way, and they're not even aware of those characters that are alive in every ounce of their being. Yet the compressed truth resonates and changes the frequency, and they sing it. Oi. God, I think it's you always I, get what you want, but you always get what you need. <laughs> my God. Oh, my gosh. So then what happens to the person who then, therefore, such as yourself, wanted to be a musician, but maybe doesn't have it seemed like you kind of dispatched from that platform concept with ease from the way that you've spoken about it. But the idea that you want to be something and realizing you're not that thing, it can be a kind of a traumatic death for some people. It was, and I, I had to put it away. I didn't even tell people that I was a musician oh, because okay. I, it's not what I wanted to identify with anymore because I was trying to convince myself that's not what I wanted to identify with anymore. Right, right. So instead of saying I am that, I was doing the I am not that. And I built up an entire persona based on what I am not. And what was left over is what I became in my conscious mind. Right, right. But the conscious mind is the last thing that manifests. So that's why you have a midlife crisis. You get a midlife crisis, you have a crisis moment that then you realize all those things that I've been suppressing and repressing by saying I am not that thing comes back with a vengeance. Oh, I Jesus. Artist. I was no longer an artist. I was no longer a musician. And now here I am at 52 years old and, you know, I sell art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, right. I sell art. And then here we'll find the mileage of also complexity that goes into the art, right? And all the myelin sheath you're wrapping while also, you know, learning how to sculpt and do all these other mediums, right? Yeah, so I never thought I was going to be a sculptor. I never thought I was going to be a, an artist, a visual artist. I never thought that there would be NFTs made of my artwork. 
That's a fascinating one. Right. That's a fascinating one. But so that goes back to your comment, you know, your, your comment earlier, which is, is the analog less valuable than the digital? Because I went to, I just went to an auction. I bought a painting that had an NFT associated with it of Grace Kelly in Monaco. And it was like 28,000 euros, $28,000. And which is a lot of money for a piece of art. But I was thinking about it. Nobody would have paid that much for that piece of art. If it weren't NFT'd, of course, because there's a there's all because we have the speculative value of that. And I was in a bidding war with someone else over it. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! I lost a bidding war with on another more expensive painting, also of Grace Kelly, that he ended up getting for fifty two thousand. So I was like, oh, okay, well at least I got one of them, <laughs> right? So here here we are, right, in this very bizarre world where mm. we're now in a world. And I'm going to have to go in a second, but we're now in a world in the 20th century. The thing that was most venerated in society was being an advisor, transferring, you know, being middlemen, record labels, right? Anyone who could aggregate up community and and the creators, the musicians, the artists, which nobody, you know, everyone wanted to say, I am not that. Most people, right? And me included, right? Then realize, you know, I, I just wasn't going to make money being that, right? I wasn't going to make money doing that. So I decided, okay, I'll be one of the money changers instead. I'll be, you know, even though I may not love it, I'll, I'll find a way to make my carve my way out and I can support a family and everything. Because I knew I was good in music and I had scholarships and everything, but I just thought the chances that I'm actually going to be like the next Wynton Marsalis are pretty freaking low. Low. Let's be real, right? Oh, yeah. Let's be real. And or Chris Bodie or one of these other guys, right? Or Maynard or whatever, because I played trumpet. I played most instruments actually. But the funny thing is, is I decided I'm not that. I am not that. I am not that. I spent the first half of my life deciding what I am not. And the second half of my life, the later stages of my life now, deciding that I am all those things. All oh. those things I judge negatively. You see, it's a cycle. It's a yin-yang cycle. It's a yin-yang cycle. Same thing. I was in the male ascending arc of life, and now I'm in the feminine descending arc of life. The anima animas. Exactly. Oh. So now you're, you're seeing this realization. So for me, I noticed also that what is valued in society around us is shifting dramatically, isn't it? Yes. Today, it's not about being a middleman anymore. We are now moving to paradigms in business that are valuing the creator, the inventor, the innovator. Oh, yeah. The men are all going to be cut out. The record labels are all fucked. Oh, in a certain way, I wonder. I wonder if, you, I wonder if it gets weird with, with, uh, with IP holdings. You know what? That's all going to get NFT'd as well. I got three yes. patents yesterday that just came in. I just posted on them, right? I just got these three new patents. You got right? three, huh? <laughs> I've got a whole bunch. I've got like close to 50 now. What but are those three, four? One of them is for a new calculator that is um, has a base 12 numbering system on it because every note in an octave also has a number that's a single digit. Of course. Right? So that's kind of obvious when you think about it, but it's not so obvious. It's right here. This is a new calculator. And uh, this one is a, uh, let's see here. This one is a waveform energy influence of objects using feedback control. 
Control system for delivering energy waveform radiation to influence in vivo tissue as, descri as described. For the system, the energy waveform radiation is generated by a radiation unit is directed along a pathway to the tissue and registration unit is provided to identify a start place relative to the vivo tissue. Uh, and basically this is used to do something called phenotypic expression, which is another patent associated with it. This one is a system and method for using electromagnetic radiation to influence cellular structures. So sound and light, a system for method for present invention requires the use of a generator, a combination of a radiation unit to radiate electromagnetic waveform energy into a target tissue during radiation of the target tissue in accordance with a predetermined titration-like protocol, the influence of the waveform energy on the cellular structure is periodically monitored. The protocol is stopped when the cellular structure has been transformed or morphed into a desired phenotype. No so it's idea. Gene, it's, it's gene editing. Oh, okay, CRISPR. We're getting now. We're getting into this world. But not CRISPR in the way CRISPR works. This is playing your DNA like keys on a piano keyboard. Oh. Oh my gosh. Turn, to, off markers, turn off markers, turn off cancer, for example. Right, right. Not through dietary choices, but in a literal way. Right. You just turn it off with sound. Oh my gosh. Okay. Whoa. Wow. So I have one, I think I have one question. And then um, if this could be the last one, this might be a big one, but I think it encapsulates. I'm going to have to watch back what you just said three times in order to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but how do you. Uh, how do, how do you uh, sit down? How do you organize ideas? Because I bet a lot of ideas come to you. And then how do you systematically see? I, how, how do you go from mind to Spotify? That's the thing that I wonder about with a lot of musicians. How do I go from walking in the park to hearing da 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 to, hey, go listen to this on my phone? How do you do that? How do you go? I'm sure you're aware enough to have almost a problem. I would say, first of all, first of all, what we think of as thoughts in our brain. Right, right. Not really a hard drive. Our brain is a radio receiver. So, and the dial for that radio receiver, the tuning dial to, to, to tune the Hertz frequency right. is the condition of your heart. It's your emotional state. So the heart is the tuning dial for the radio that your brain then becomes the receiver for. And so whenever we are feeling gratitude and we feel happy and loved, that's when our vibration is raised and we end up tuning into a much higher frequency. Mm. And as we tune into that higher frequency of thoughts, the thoughts that come into our mind are literally like radio signals. They're not, they're non-local to your brain. They're not stored in your brain. Our brain is not a hard drive storage unit. That's what we think it is, but it's way more than that. Mm. Basically what, what happens is when we tune into those very high frequencies, the manifestation of those frequencies becomes very easy and the universe converges for your benefit to make those a reality. So how to stay on that frequency is one thing, right? And then it turns, so it's remaining on that frequency, not a fear-based frequency, right. but a love-based frequency. It's right. remaining on that frequency, not deviating from it, and also applying your own intention, your conscious choice, your intentional choice, to that, to amplify it and grow it. I also listen to my intuition. Is this something, when I know that something is going to be big or has big potential and is worthy of my effort and time, I get a chill up my entire back and body. Right. And I listen to that. Of course. We have, we have far more senses than just our five senses. I believe it's five squared. At least. Right. Whoa, five squared. 
Mm. It would only be that given the concept of what we're talking about with duality. That's because each dimension, each higher dimension we experience will be another exponential power of another whole number of those experiences. So, of course, it's five squared. It's the same thing. If you go from the second dimension, which is measuring area in Euclidean plane geometry, to the third dimension, it goes up to, to the third power, right? So you're looking at volume now. So volume of a sphere is four-thirds pi cubed, pi r cubed, right? Because it's going from the second dimension to the third dimension. The third dimension is now going to be measured in cubic relationships. Okay. So it's the third power. So then you go to the fourth power, that's encompassing motion and time. The fifth power is another perspective on motion and time. Oh. Backwards. Backwards? Yin and yang, black yep. and white, major, minor. Oh, no. Oh, wow. So this, this is wild. Wow. We are in this. We are really in this thing. So then going to the next dimension is just to the sixth power. And what is backwards and backwards then? Well, then that's, you know, the next level means that you're no longer bound by time. Ooh. You're no longer bound by it. You have, you know, backwards and forwards. But you're also, you have an x-axis, y-axis, and a z-axis of time then. A z-axis of time. Okay, that's a lot. That really is a lot. That's a lot to encompass, but I do have to run now. But Thank you for the time, Robert. It's a pleasure talking with you. Likewise, likewise, my friend. I look you forward are, you to you. Are, you are one smart dude, I can tell. Wow. And, you know, as I, and the people that come into my life, I can tell when I'm making the right choices, when the people that I come into my life are resonating at those higher frequencies. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because we are everything that we judge. So the more we judge these types of good, excellent, higher dimensional experiences, the more friends we meet, your entire friend network and everything in your life shifts. Right, right, right. I noticed Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. I'll talk to you later, my friend. All the best. All right. Bye -bye. Likewise to you. Boy, I really do hope that this conversation was as valuable and useful for you, the listener, as it was for me. I want to thank Mr. Robert Edward Grant for his time um, and his conscious energy and, and for, for um, talking about these, these ideas that are rather abstract and, and qualitative in their nature in a way that was uh, very open-minded and very detailed. I, I sincerely do appreciate that, and I've learned a lot from this. And I hope you, the listener, have taken some things from this because you're investing your time and your energy in listening to this podcast as well. And I just hope that it brings you value as we roll down this lost highway together. I hope we are learning things and enjoying the sights as we go. I want to thank Osiris Media for hosting the Lost Highway podcast. I want to thank Topo Chico for sponsoring the podcast. And most importantly, I want to thank you, the listener. Uh, for listening to this podcast without you listening this would be a whole lot less fun and as jerry garcia said i've often had fun in this lifetime uh y'all keep it patient persistent and positive keep it cosmic and i will see you next time osiris <laughs>